Hi guys, welcome to my Steps to Sobriety, the show on my YouTube channel as well as a podcast. And today I'm privileged and humbled to have Brooke Collins with me. Brooke is a, a life coach who uh, is helping women to get clear in their minds what they want to be when they grow up and then gives them the tools how to get there. So I'm very privileged and very, very uh, excited to, to talk to Brooke, who is here with me on my show. Good morning to you or good afternoon where you are. Yes, good morning. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Always a pleasure. Brooke, I'm sure one day when you are around about 10 years old, you woke up, you went to your mommy's bed and said, Mommy, I've figured out what I want to do. I will help women declutter their minds and get on with their life. Yep, that's me. Nah, okay, I see your eyes. <laughs> so what did you want to do when you were 10? <laughs> Uh, when I was 10, I think I, uh, I always, I was like looking to be a teacher. I think I've always had a genuine, uh, desire to help people grow, but I wanted to be a teacher, um, until I got to college, I think. But at 10, I was definitely playing school and doing all the things to become a teacher. Excellent. So you were, you were a good girl. You, you worked hard at school. Yeah. Okay, yeah, I don't know how good I was, but yeah, I worked hard at school. <laughs> Fair call. Fair call. <laughs> <laughs> then, so what did you do? What, how did your life pan out? Um, oh, my life has taken a lot of, of weaves and, you know, bob and weaves, I guess. Um, but I, um, I grew up in um, a suburb of Metro Detroit in Michigan in the States. And I live in a fairly typical middle-class suburb um, and grew up, you know, um, going to school and playing tennis and golf and all the things and skiing in the winter and um, a very idyllic childhood. And um, when I was 10, my sister was diagnosed with a rare juvenile bone cancer. Wow. And that took um, a lot out of our family just to to fight that, particularly my parents, because um, in 1990 and 1991, like chemo was like a two week thing. So my mom and her would be in the hospital and my dad and I would be at our house. And um, she fought that battle for three years and eventually um, she ended up losing it and dying when I was 13 and she was 17, um, which sort of, changed my whole world. Um, even though I wasn't thrilled with the fighting of the disease and all the time that my parents were, you know, taken from me to help her fight her stuff and staying with neighbors and family and relatives and things like that. But, um, you know, that her death really shifted and changed the trajectory, I think, of my whole life because I was a good kid. Um, I was, you know, I always did get good grades, but after you know, her death, I just wanted things so desperately to go back to normal. And I didn't know what normal looked like anymore, but I knew that I wanted it to be what it was like pre, pre cancer. And, um, 
you know, I couldn't get it there. So I just shut down emotionally. I put up, you know, all these walls and that was it. I wasn't going to talk about her. I wasn't going to, um, I wanted basically to erase all of it and like start over. So that was like the earlier part of, of my childhood. And then, um, cute middle school, um, high school, um, as get good grades. That was part of my requirement for not being grounded (laughs) was having good grades. That was my responsibility to my house. And I did that. And, um, I also did a lot of partying. I started drinking, um, so ninth grade here. So 14, um, 15, you know, we, I started drinking, I was hanging out with kids who were older than me and that became, um, the focus of my existence. I took my first drink and I remember instantly feeling no pain and being confident and people thought I was funny and they thought I was cool. And so that's where my high school career, uh, you know, that was where my priority was the entire school career and in college. And then I, you know, get to college. My grades were not good. Not having any supervision was like a full blown, um, (laughs) full blown. I had no idea, you know, like I was like living the dream. And until I got my report card and I got put on academic probation and my parents were furious and I, you know, came home for the semester and they were, you know, I got, my the my dad literally handed me my ass excuse the word no, 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 no. back and you're gonna fix your grades and you're gonna stop partying and you're gonna you're gonna complete it so i um i did work really hard you know to get my grades back um but partying always always the focus i couldn't wait i took i scheduled my college courses in such a way that I was done, I did Tuesdays and Thursdays and I would stuff them into both days. And Thursdays I made the last class, I finished it too. And from Thursday to Sunday, I was partying, like coordinating parties, going to parties, going to other schools to party. And um, it just was the starting to become the center of my universe. It probably always was the center of my universe, but it really started to take a hold on me in the college years. Then, you know, in the States, when we turn 21, we can drink legally. And that became um, like the best thing ever to happen to me because I could go to bars and I could buy alcohol and I didn't have to wait for it anymore. Um, So I've always been social, a social person. I've always loved a people person. I love to talk to people. I love to be around people. but it got to a point I didn't know how to be around people without drinking. I just couldn't imagine being, you know, as dynamic as I thought I was being. And I'm sure to look back, I was a total idiot. I'm sure of it. But in my mind, you know, I'm like the bee's knees, like everyone's thinking I'm incredible. Don't we all have that illusion? Don't we all? It's just you dance as if there is no tomorrow. And then, God, I'm so lucky because at the time when I did all that, 
there, there were no cell phones with cameras. So there was not much evidence from my escapades. And I'm so grateful for that because I for sure, well, I was a good dancer. I, 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 I enjoyed dancing a lot, but I don't think after several wine or several beer years, so uh, you are as good as you think you are. <laughs> you, yeah, Christ, you probably more oh. look like a hedgehog on speed. <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> no, you, you are, you are, you are basically acting out the mixture of hormones in your teenager years and the trauma uh, really set a fuse to your life. And it is, it's actually beautiful how you describe it, the insight that you have got, because this must have been very hard times. This must have been very confusing times for you when you were younger. And the way you described the pain going with the first drink, this is such a classic, classic thing, isn't it? It is, it is one of my other guests has described it just in the sound effect when he drinks. Ah, that was his sound effect. This kind of, ah, the pain goes. And literally, I feel it. I feel it. The second glass of wine, uh, as soon as it hits out of the bloodstream, my shoulders just relax. And there's a nice warmth in me. And it's all sort of the, the, the false friend who gives you the hug before it stabs you in the back. And, but yeah, no doubt it is, there is this reward system in our body and we just want it so bad. Oh dear. Oh dear. So, so far you are parting as if there is no tomorrow and you have just sort of rescued your grades. Are you still in university? What's the next year like after you have, you have had the rocket up your ass uh, by your dad? <laughs> um, yeah, the next year looks, um, I ended up um, deciding that I, I wanted to be a um, cosmetologist, so a hairstylist. Um, and so I, instead of really allowing my parents to see that I was flunking out again, I was, no, I'm going to change my trajectory. I want to be a hairstylist. This is what I want to do. This is where I want to go. Um, <laughs> so I came home to a local um you know, cosmetology school that was local and I found an apartment and moved in there with a friend and did that and got my cos license. That didn't take too long. I think it was a year and started working and, and was just, you know, again, there was partying constantly. It's the whole time of a line of events there is pretty, um, pretty blurry, but there was partying all the time. My friend worked at a local bar as the bartender. So I was drinking for free, you know, and doing all the, having all the fun and then staying after with the wait staff to drink when the bar closed and, um, all of those things that we, we do, or most of us do. And, uh, I just, um, I loved that, that feeling, that release. I loved the second that I took a sip of a drink, I could feel the warmth going down and that I was like, the light came on and I was able to function. Um, and then I met a boy. Um, 
And that was a real um, intense, really fast, really passionate, like just magnetic kind of love, I thought. Um, And he liked to drink as much as I did. So looking back, it was a train wreck waiting to happen. Um, And I just, it was like a passionate love. And we ended up moving in together and um, it became very volatile very quickly um, after moving in together and your typical alcoholic relationship, um, you know, just, it was explosive. When it was good, it was explosive in a good way. And it, it was, when it was bad, it was just as explosive in the opposite direction. So um, it, it became abusive um, and it was becoming dangerous. I didn't realize at the time that he was undiagnosed bipolar and he was using alcohol to medicate himself. And I couldn't understand why he just couldn't drink the way that I drank. I mean, I was not drinking normally anyway, but like in my head, you know, I'm thinking if he could just drink the way that I'm drinking, it would be so much better. Things would be like so much easier. Oh, priceless. Oh, priceless. (laughs) Isn't it it crazy how, how alcohol makes us believe that what we do is absolutely normal and we have no problem whatsoever. But look at the other guy. Look at him or her. Wow. Hey, how oh, they're really bad, aren't they? <laughs> it's priceless. But we are all the same. We're all the freaking same. So, <laughs> oh, wow. Oh, uh, yeah. But, but I, I feel that there is... Well, actually- it is. It's that, like... No, I feel I feel that there is uh, there is a climax coming there. Um, yeah, how well, did, yeah. How did that story continue? Well, that ended. That was a. It ended up being. Oh, sorry. Yeah, it ended up being a um, a nine year relationship. We oh. got married, um, and we had a daughter. Um, or I should say we found out we were having a baby and got married <laughs> and um, that, um, but we stayed together my, my, the duration of my twenties. And um, we had a daughter at, I was 24 and he was 25 and we were looking back. Um, we were babies. I mean, I can't believe I was not fearless. I thought I was like full grown and, uh, could handle this responsibility. My parents were worried, but um, in all honesty, having her um, changed my life in a way that I didn't expect. You know, I mean, I expected to love my child, obviously, but she really um, is like, I look at her as a guardian angel to me because she really saved my life in a lot of, in multiple instances in my life. But, you know, having her required me to stop drinking. I had to stop drinking for nine months. I had to, and then I was nursing. So I just, that was like another six months on, you know, after that. So I had some time without alcohol and I was able to do it, devoting myself to her and my, you know, my pregnancy and then making sure that she was healthy. 
Um, and then when it was like the, the, the nursing stopped and I'm here, I am having my first glass of wine. And it was like that feeling that, Oh God, I remember how good this felt. God, I miss this and I can handle this. And at this point, because I had taken so much time off of drinking, I had sort of talked myself into believing that I was able to control this as long as I only had two or three drinks. Um, and that lasted, I don't know, probably a couple months, maybe a year tops of like not really being happy um, and, and wanting, you know, to drink more, but like really controlling it. I didn't want to drive with her in the car, you know, any of those things. And at this point, though, her father was way progressed and it was becoming um it was becoming violent in a way that was going to affect her. And I didn't realize it then, but I had not, I had no self, I didn't see any value in myself. Um, and so I wasn't able to ever really leave. And there was a lot of points in this relationship where people told me to leave and I needed to leave and I just couldn't do it. I, I believe that he loved me. Um, but you know, people who love you don't break your nose and, um, and choke you and and do all these horrible things. Um, but when it was coming to this, this explosion and it was father's day, the night before father's day, and he had, we were leaving a party and I didn't realize he was sneaking drinks. So I had been drinking and he had been drinking and I said something and he, I don't even know. All I remember is like going like, this and I had blood just pouring all over the place. And then, you know, he wouldn't take me home. He was driving to a field and there was a point where I actually had to think like, I'm going to die. He's taking me to, to some, I don't even know where we are. He's like planning on, on killing me. And he made me take my shirt off and I was like holding to clean up the blood and he took me to a field and he wanted me to walk out and bury my shirt. It was very manic and alcoholic, like very drunk and very manic at the same time. And I, all I could think was that my um, one-year-old was in that in the back seat and I had to figure out a way to get back in the car safely, but also find a place, find out where we were because I hadn't been paying attention, um, trying to clean myself up and my nose was just pouring blood. And I finally got back in the car and was able to like redirect. I figured out we were close, like again, guardian angels around me because we were not very far from his mother's house. And I was able to convince him to get me, let's take, let's go to your mom's house and we'll drop, we'll drop Gabriella off. And then we'll, we can come back and, and, you know, talk about this as soon as we get her out of the car and get her in bed and all this stuff. And, um, you know, I got to her door and I got, as soon as I got Gabrielle out of the car, I, I couldn't breathe. I was like panicking. And then I felt safety when I went into the, to her house. And then I thought I'm so, I was so intoxicated. Like there's no way if I wouldn't have seen where we were, I mean, I think about that moment all the time. If things would have gone, just my reaction would have been a little different, or if I wouldn't have paid attention, or if I had had one more drink, where would I be? And would I be here? Um, 
And that was the first time I think I accepted for a minute, not for long, but for a minute that I, I acknowledged that I had a problem with alcohol because it's up to me to keep my baby safe. And I failed her miserably. Um, in my judgment was off, it was clouded. And that became an entire year of riding the wave of his drinking and his mania and, and his lows and his highs. And finally, the last straw um, that finally I broke free and, and walked away from that relationship was, you know, he had come in and was upset about something. And my daughter was, had been not feeling good. So she was laying in bed with me and it was, I don't know, you know, late midnight or something, one in the morning. And he dragged me out of the bed because he wanted to talk to me and she had waken, woken up and she came over and said, stop, stop, daddy. She was about, you know, two, three, she was three. Um, and you know, he sort of slid her across the bed violently. And then she came back and he chucked a glass of water in her face. And that was it. I stayed calm and did what I needed to do in the moment. And then that morning he was passed out and I packed her and I up and that was it. I was getting divorced and I did not reside under a roof with him ever again. That was it. So, um, and that was heartbreaking and hard for me. Um, I was so, um, I believed that he loved me and my mind was so clouded with drinking all the time. I couldn't see the lines of, of boundaries or what love looked like anymore. And I think looking back, I think I believed I deserved whatever type of love I was receiving from him, which was not good. Um, but I knew that I was not going to raise my child in an environment like that. And that I was not ever going to allow her to ever be hurt um, by anyone. And that I was raised better than that. So that was it. I had to um, stand up for what I believed in. And that was um, a very big stepping stone for me in finding um, my own voice. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. I feel, I feel for you and I, I, I viscerally feel the, the pain that you had been in. And it strikes me that you use words such as I feel that I deserved the love that I got at that time. You put actually quite a bit of onus on yourself and the, the, the lack of, the lack of, in, not integrity, the lack of self-worth that you, that comes out of your words. The hopelessness is quite striking, isn't it? It is, it is such a weird construct that we find ourselves in. I don't think I was much different in the way I looked at myself. I had a very low self-esteem. 
And whilst I was keeping up all the masks and all the the, the, the outside, uh, everything had to fit and everything was absolutely honky-dory towards, the, towards everyone else, deep inside, I was broken, deep inside. And then with the alcohol, you don't realize how broken you are. You, it is, it, it's, your head is a fog, is a, is a cloud, it's, it's, it's a haze. You're so right, you described it so well. And now, wow, wow, wow. I mean, you were, at that time, you were um, hairdressing. You, money probably was not, not growing on trees. Uh, how did it continue? Where did you go that morning? No, money was not growing on trees because um, he was, my husband was unable to keep a job. So um, it all fell on to me. Um, but I am lucky in the regard that my parents took both of us um, in my daughter and I, and we, um, you know, we moved in, in with them. And that was, I think I lived with my parents after my, during my divorce and after my divorce for about three years total. Um, and I was not sober during that period, but what I had started to do in terms of drinking was I would drink like if, if my daughter was visiting her grandma or like I would find these windows to like go all out for like 24, 48 hours and then these vendors. And then I would withdraw for three days and then like, and then have one day of maybe I wasn't going to drink and then start it all, like start the cycle all over again. Um, but I will say, you know, in my parents are incredible parents. And I think that's where I got the strength to walk away from because I was raised by parents who always put me and my sister's needs first. They were there, whatever, you know, support. We, there was never a shortage of support or love in the household that I grew up in. Um, and having them there to help me with my daughter was, um, it was helpful. It was obviously needed. And then I did have a bit of, you know, they would draw the line. My dad in particular would be like, you need to quit drinking. Like every problem that you have in your life is because of alcohol. You know, if you take alcohol out of your life, you, there are no problems for you. And, you know, he was right. Um, a hundred percent he was right, but I couldn't, you know, I couldn't stop. <laughs> At that point, it had gotten to the point I couldn't stop. <laughs> and you've just given me all the, the hallmarks of a high-functioning alcoholic, isn't it? The, the meticulous planning of the, the timing, you, you're thinking about it. Were you hiding your alcohol at that time? Yeah. Oh, yeah. God, yeah. Yep. <laughs> exactly. So no, no, it's, oh, it's, it's beautiful, isn't it? We live this, this hidden life, this this. God, we, we, you know, it is, uh, it is, it's so bizarre what we do as alcoholics, the amount of energy we use up to think about alcohol, buy the alcohol, drink the alcohol, 
hide the alcohol effects, hide the hangover the next day, hide the fact that you've passed out. Try to remember what you did when you were drunk. And it's just, my goodness, this is a full-time job. There is, <laughs> you can't do anything else. Oh. No, it is. If I put half the energy into my life at that time that I did into hiding my alcoholism, I'd probably be a millionaire right now, like a multimillionaire, because it was like that much energy. It was draining. I mean, thinking back on it, I get exhausted. Just like, how did I, huh, I mean, how did I function like that? You know, but we go to great lengths to get the fix and the fill. Um, you know, that we need as alcoholics. And um, I don't think I ever, it's taken me a while to understand the, the genetic disposition that comes with alcoholism and the fact that it is, I believe it to be a, an allergy. Like the minute I had a drink at 14, something clicked in my brain and I'm, you know, and it's like this growing, evolving because I have the allergy, I never was able to like drink mildly or slowly or how any of my other friends did, you know? Oh, you have got a superpower. You are actually a superhero. Uh, your brain gives out about ah, 100 times, probably 800 times as much dopamine uh, in response to a drink than, than someone else's brain does. And it's the same with me. It's that kind of, oh, wow. The colors are beautiful and life is gorgeous to a degree that someone else who has a sip of the wine says, yeah, it was quite nice. And then just puts the wine down. It's absolutely unbelievable. I, I would look at this person and think, why the hell don't you keep that glass in your hand? Because it's so precious. And it's so, my God, you could spill it or you could, no, 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 no just drink. It's beautiful. So I could not agree more. I could not agree more. My goodness, um, what, where was the final moment? What pushed you in a good sense over the edge? When was, when did you um, realize well, enough is enough? Been hiding the alcohol. Yeah, I had been hiding the alcohol. I hit my 30th birthday and um, was reeling sort of in victim swimming in victimhood and you know my life isn't where I want it to be and my friends are all progressing past me and poor me poor me poor me um poor me another one yeah exactly exactly <laughs> and um but don't tell anyone that you poured it you know and <laughs> um, <laughs> and you know my dad I there were the last two times I drank, I vividly, um, the one thing I remember is my dad had, a. he looked at me and I had known um, that my grandfather was an alcoholic and died of alcoholism, but my parents didn't drink and my aunts and uncles barely drank. I mean, they would have a beer and stuff, but my parents are not alcoholics. They, you know, my mom would have a sip of wine and leave it. And I'd be like, oh my God, what's wrong with you? Like you left a whole glass of wine there. And um, so, <laughs> but the other, I knew that he had died from drinking. My dad always told me to watch out for drinking. And um, he finally, I was drunk and he said, you know, 
it's happening and I can see it happening. And I used to have to take my dad to the hospital in a straitjacket so he could withdraw. And I'm not going to do it with you. So that was like eye opening because he had never educated me. Not that it would have made a difference, probably, but I had never realized the extent of how bad my grandfather's alcoholism was. I I just assumed it was a heart attack, and you know, I mean, I had no idea um, how bad my dad's childhood was from, you know, having an alcoholic father. And he always knew, my dad always knew when I'd had one drink, he would look at me and say, you've been drinking. Like, even if I had just had one sip, he would know. And I never understood how he knew it. And then it became clear to me the last, that time, you know, he just was, you are not going to do this and I'm not going to do it with you. I did it as a kid and I'm, I'm not doing it with my kid. So, um, that was, I think I was able to get sober at that point for about that lasted about 90 days. I think I made it three months. It had an effect on me. I had found, um, Alcoholics Anonymous, um, through a friend and I started going to meetings and got a sponsor and, um, I, that lasted 90 days. And then I reunited with an old friend and, um, had one glass of wine and, you know, I thought, uh, I mean, quite frankly, I was driving home and I'm like, I had one glass of wine. I'm fine. I don't need another one. Those people are crazy. I'm not an alcoholic. I was just depressed. That's what it was. So I had a real, um, real fast, real furious relapse. And I was drinking the progression of my alcoholism at that point after having only three months of not drinking it scared the shit out of me. I was waking up at 4 a.m. And, and drinking vodka from a bottle and going back to sleep. <laughs> oh, please. I mean, we, we could be twins. I could be in your, in, your, in your body and speak the same words. Yeah, uh. and I, but I, that's where it went. And I couldn't... And I was drinking, I read wine out of like the box, from the box. Like I just stopped even getting a cup. Like it wasn't even worth having a cup anymore. <laughs> I'm so grateful for your honesty and, <laughs> and your humility to actually share that. That is, that is, that's what we do. That's what we do. Uh, that's right. Who cares? Uh, oh, what a beautiful bouquet. <laughs> Yep. It was ugly. And, you know, I, at this point realized I was, I was living to drink at this point and I was terrified and I was drinking to die and I knew I was killing myself. And, um, I was way overweight. I was depressed. I was drinking and like just drinking to pass out. And I was never sure if I was going to wake up or not. And I was okay with it. Like whatever happens, happens. I'm, you know, and passing out. Um, and that led to the last 
my last drink, which was January 22nd, 2012. And I had a day and a half of drinking and was um, annihilated, blacked out, drunk. And um, one of my friends, I had been texting her, I guess, that I didn't deserve to be here and, you know, all of these things. And luckily, she called my parents. It was like 6 a.m. on a Monday morning and said, you know, I think you need to go to Brooke's apartment. And I was, you know, and I think that she's in trouble and I think she needs you there. So my mom came and I was so drunk, she didn't know what to do. So she called 911 because I was like incoherent and I couldn't stand up. And um, so... I have this vivid memory of being wheeled out in a stretcher into the ambulance and not really knowing. I like it. The whole thing is from an aerial view. Um, people talking to me and asking me questions and, you know, they took my BAC and it was uh, 0.399 and this EMS person was like blown away because I was like talking and you know, communicating with her fine. Um, and then I woke up in the hospital and I had like a sitter in my room because um, they thought I was suicidal. And that was the wake up call that I, unfortunately, that I needed. Um, I didn't want to take my own life. Um, I didn't want to live, but I I didn't want to die. And I recognized it in that moment that I could see the light at the end of the tunnel, but I had no idea how to get out of the darkness. I could not figure out how to get out of it. Um, And I'm grateful every day because my mom went through my phone and found the woman who was sponsoring me, found her number, and got a hold of her and she came to the hospital and um you know she's still a part of my life today a big part of it and i tell her all the time that she saved my life because she reached her hand down and said you know if you want it if you don't want to drink ever again you don't have to drink you know and i can help you just you know take my hand and i'm going to love you until you love yourself and the rest, as they say, is history. That was, I committed, not easy, but I did, I committed to it. And I never, I, to this day, knock on wood, haven't um, felt the need to drink anymore. I love you until you finally love yourself. What a beautiful saying. What a beautiful saying. Because that's, we have lost all the, the self-worth at that moment, you feel like a piece of shit and you probably behave like one as well. And some of the people that really love you will maybe have walked away because enough was enough. And your dad, your dad gave you that ultimatum. Your dad told you, Hey, look, this is, we can't continue like that. But even that, I know my wife gave me many ultimatums and I said, yeah, 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 yeah. And then I hit my drinking and made sure that, that you can't find the bottles. And then, of course, you found the bottles. And, of course, I was so drunk that I staggered around and it was blatantly obvious. And it's just, oh, my God. 
a life of hiding. Did you, so you were now lying in the hospital. Um, your friend was there for you. And this must have been a beautiful feeling to actually realize that someone is there for you. And your mum was there for you. A big shout out to your mum. Hello, mum out there. Well done, you. Well done <laughs> for, for not running away. <laughs> you would have had all the reasons and all the, 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 there's no one would have blamed you if you would have turned your back. But you did what a mummy does and I do what a, what a daddy does. We are doing exactly the right thing. So well done, mum. Um, you had already been introduced to AA. You went to meetings. Did you actually do the work? Did you actually work through the steps? And I mean, work through the steps. Did you actually work on your resentments, on your anger, on your fears? Did you actually try to figure out what makes you drink? Not the first time around, but the second time. Um, yeah, the second time I did. The first time I think I um, grazed over it all with a real nonchalant kind of um, I'm unique. You know, what is it? Constitutional uniqueness. I'm unique. <laughs> Doesn't apply to me. Absolutely. I'm above it. <laughs> Absolutely. Hey, girl, you can't bullshit a bullshitter. So <laughs> I'm, I know exactly what you're thinking. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> but yeah, I, I was exactly there. I was, oh, dear. Uh, and, but then something changed. Then something changed. You had all these wake-up calls. Many of them didn't hit home. What changed? What made it different this time around? Um, honestly, I think the fact that I, I was terrified, the, the thing that kept me the most sober the first year of my sobriety and do the work was I was terrified that my blood alcohol level was so high. And all I could do was think about the fact that there were so many times that I'd felt like that and I'd been that drunk and that any one of those times I could have not woken up. And, you know, I, I realized that's when I realized I was drinking to die. And it all kind of hit me that I could have died. And by the, by the grace of God, I didn't because there were plenty of times uh, God only knows how high, you know, my blood alcohol level was. And, and that terrified me. So I said, well, I'll give this a try. Um, I'll, I'll do the work. I'll get honest. Right. Um, and it wasn't to do it, but I knew that if my, my sponsor had changed her life so dramatically from where she had come from, um, and I was seeing all these people who had you know, and who had nice, they had nice things. They had beautiful homes and beautiful cars and not in my head, right? What we envision Alcoholics Anonymous to look like. And I'm thinking like, they tell these stories of like, like homelessness and, and, you know, all these other things. And they were able by just going through this stuff, making inventories, 
looking at myself and holding myself accountable and finding my part in everything. Um, if that's what it takes for me to not drink again, then, you know, I'm willing to try it. Willing to try it was always, I'll try it. Give it a go. We'll see what happens. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. And the same with me. I, I poo-pooed the 12 steps, the AA, yeah, no, no, that's for alcoholics. That's not for me. Come on, look at me. I'm a high-functioning doctor. You know, I'm good in my job. Yeah, look at me. Come on. Yeah, yeah. Um, but having said that, the freedom that I experienced when I was in rehab, the freedom to actually explore the dark sides of my life and to figure them out and to put them to the side. It, it was very painful uh, the first four weeks, the first year. But by doing that, I actually put a lot of demons to rest. And it was such a beautiful thing to do. And for those of you out there who are listening or who are watching this and thinking that no, no, AA is a cult and it's all religious and it's all no, 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 no. The reality is there are a number of systems out there that can help you to stop drinking and to explore what's going on. So you don't have to do AA. There are uh, smart recovery. There are other systems out there that focus on purely on, on the life that you want to achieve. And by focusing on that life, you, you learn to do the same right things as you, as you learn in the 12 step program. 12 steps just basically means that you, that you take a good look at yourself to start off with, figure out what's wrong, what doesn't work anymore get rid of the shit, look at what works, build on that, then take a general view and think, well, actually, what do I really need in my life? What are those things that are missing at the moment, but that I want? And what little steps do I need to take to get myself there? That's 12 steps in a nutshell. So yes, there can be some religious words in there and for some of you, that might be a bit of a of a of a downer or a letdown. God can be a group of orderly drunks. It just means that there is something out there that is bigger than you, and that needs that needs to come into your life. And if that is a real God, if you like God, that concept, good on you. If religion helps you, I'm so pleased for you. Uh, if you're completely secular and religion wraps you up the wrong way, well, you are, that's okay. That's, you're like me. And, but it actually didn't take me long. It took me one session of emotions, which was sort of sitting around, uh, the, the rehab, uh, center and you're not allowed to do, to have anything, no sunglasses, no hat, no nothing to hide nothing in your hands, you sit around, and you talk for an hour about emotions, the most dreaded and hated class in rehab, because you actually had, had to look at what is going on inside you. That was painful. And it was, but it was so illuminating. For Christ's sake, it was illuminating. And there was this one girl who had a really go at the, the counselor. Oh, God, I don't believe in him, etc, etc. And when I watched her, 
I could see exactly what was going on. It was an excuse. She needed some excuse why this whole thing did not apply to her and why she, why she therefore, because she did not believe in God, therefore the whole system was shit and didn't apply to her. Uh, she needed that excuse at that moment in time. But it was so blatantly obvious for me. And then, because I had the same reservation and I was about to say something, then I said, that's bullshit. That's, that's actually real bullshit, what you're about to say. Forget that God thing for a moment. Just accept it for what it is and just move on. Actually, let's listen to the, to the message here and don't get hung up on, on, on the God thing. Did you go actually into rehab or did you work as an outpatient? Did you go to meetings? How did it work for you? Um, I did not go to rehab and I don't know how I didn't, but I, I didn't. Um, I just did meetings every day. Um, I did 90 and 90 um, and kept very close contact with my sponsor daily, you know, calls, texts, that kind of thing. Um, and I was held accountable for the fact that I said I would go to 90 and 90. And so she would follow up with me and I would, you know, so I knew there was, um, if I didn't do it, that I'd lose her. And she was my beacon of hope. The only thing that I had, you know, to hold on to at the time. So, um, I did it. And there are a lot of people with the God issue and, um, you know, to those people, I say, I like the group of orderly drunks because I know so many people who, um, you know, the people of Alcoholic and uh, Alcoholics Anonymous or the group where they sit and talk, if it's not AA or a group of people who they found, they're the ones who, who they look at as a higher power, the tables and the feelings and the things that come out of other people's mouths uh, that are like, all of a sudden it hits you like, oh my God, I needed to hear that today. I didn't tell anyone that that's what I was feeling, but wow, that is exactly what I needed to hear. <laughs> and, you know, that was, that was the way that, that it went for me. Um, and just kept going to meetings. And my sponsor used to say to me all the time when I would try and, and come up with some unique unique excuses for why I didn't need to do something or I shouldn't have to do something. And, you know, she'd just say, you believe the bullshit that's coming out of your mouth right now, bro? Like you actually believe like that's, that's reality. <laughs> See, you can't bullshit the bullshit. We have been there. We have got to vomit on the t-shirt. Honestly, we know it. <laughs> so true. So true. Uh, but you try. But I love it the way you might not realize that you distinguish between the work and the meeting. And that's really what I'd like to hear. Because you did the work and your your uh, mentor led you down that path. I see too many people that just turn up to meetings but don't actually do the work. So therefore, they are still at at step one or step two and are talking about the same story again and again, how bad their life is and are not moving forward. They are not addressing what is what needs to be addressed and change their life and, and claw back from the abyss that they have ducked themselves uh, with their drinking 
and they are still teetering just just on the brink of and if they don't turn up on a meeting then they relapse just that evening that day etc and that's the white knuckling and that's i hate that i absolutely hate that because that is just it's just such a loss that you cannot you cannot move forward because that's what this is all about the the aa is not something that you pitch your tent and that's where you go forever um the system right. is there to help you okay it is is this is there to to guide you onto a journey and is and that journey ends in something really 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 beautiful and when you think about meetings i mean right now i am having a meeting uh right now brooke and i are talking about recovery and, uh, and sobriety so that is for all intents and purpose it's a meeting and that is very very clear there is a a, a, a quote or a part of a letter from 1946 where bill wilson himself actually says look it doesn't matter if it is now he uses the, the words of his time if it is the most unmoral uh not god loving uh, i keep forgetting the exact phrasing but they can be a whole bunch of pieces of shit as long as they've got the desire not to drink and come together to work on that desire then that makes that an aa group and i actually like that and and he he specifies that it doesn't matter which color the skin is and which color uh, your your beliefs are uh it does not matter so guys don't get hung up on on any kind of 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 myth of whatever as far as aa is concerned this is not this is not a cult this is not something weird out there it is a method that allows you to move forward just as much as maybe religion is a beautiful thing for some people and there will be churches that i would never go into because this this church is just it's still a religion of, of christianity but the church they are just nuts they are just i don't know extreme in one way or the other whilst other churches might be far more of interest to you maybe their their path their their the way they go about their path is much nicer so just as much as different churches are, are different for you if you're a christian just as much different groups in the aa will be doing exactly the same there are some groups that are very religious and that is their strength because their members draw strength from god in as they believe the deity of of god for others they would run a mile there come others are completely secular and you will whilst you will still hear the word god it is then meant in a very very different way so for you guys out there please 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 look around if you if you go to one group and you think whoa what a bunch of nutters ask yourself two questions are they really nutters or are they actually right in what they are saying and do you just don't like the message or are they really nutters <laughs> and then <laughs> it's time to move on and find yourself another group <laughs> right <laughs> is that your experience as well have you been to different yeah. groups 
Yeah, I have. And um, I've been to meetings, you know, all over, um, all over the place, different states. Um, you know, that's one thing I like about the fellowship of AA. And again, AA is not for everyone. I don't say that it's the only way to recover from drinking um, and alcoholism, but for me, it's what worked. And I like knowing that no matter where I go, no matter if I'm in New Zealand, if I'm in on a cruise ship, if I'm on, you know, that there are meetings every hour of every day that I can go to. I mean, look at this pandemic, this coronavirus. Look at the way that AA created these worldwide forums for people to maintain sobriety. And that is an incredible you know, incredible thing. I was on meetings with people in London and in, you know, I mean, it's unbelievable to be able to be connected with people and gain strength from their story who live a totally different life than me, who their color doesn't matter. Nothing, their, where their status is in life is irrelevant to me. The fact is we are cut from the same cloth and they are exactly the way I am. And we think the same way and we behave the same way because we are alcoholics and we suffer from the same disorder. <laughs> so true. So true. Okay. So eight years ago, you decided to change your life and you were lucky and privileged and, and in the right place in the right time to actually have a sponsor, a mentor who was guiding you. And Fast forward now, you did all the hard work. There were no doubt difficult times in the first year or two where a drink might very well have slipped down your throat and you just, the, the relapse was always around the corner. It certainly was for me. Um, it was just uh, when it was a shit day, oh, you, look, it was a shit day. Come on, have a drink. Or when it was a good day, hey, let's celebrate. Yes. And you know, your brain comes up with all kinds of excuses why you actually should have a drink. So for me, that didn't go away for, oh, at least two years. And even from now and then, nowadays, you get a sneaky little, little attempt by alcohol to tempt you. So it is, uh, it is what it is. It's a, it's a lifelong predisposition to go early to, to the grave. Uh, I think that's how I look, like it. And I like your, your allergic synergy uh, or the, the allergic uh, um, description. I'm allergic to alcohol and it is, I just can't have it. I like that. I like Robert Downey Jr.'s uh, version better. I'm allergic to alcohol. Uh, when, I, when I have alcohol, I, I break out in handcuffs. Um, so <laughs> but yeah, it is what it is. <laughs> <laughs> so where are you nowadays? I mean, you have, you have changed your life. You went on an exponential growth curve and you are now such a different girl than the girl that was down and out and broken and, and crying in the middle of the night. Yeah, I am. Um, yeah, I am uh, a completely different person. Um, I like to think sometimes that this is who I was always meant to be. I just took a little detour for a while. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. <laughs> but, it, um, you know, doing the work. And I met my, I'm, my now husband, I met 
through my sponsor. He's a recovering alcoholic. He's actually a certified um, addictions therapist. And um, so that's worked out well. We have another, we have a daughter together. So we have two daughters, my older daughter, and then one together. Um, And, um, you know, I think back on going through the work and doing the work and there are, this disease is cunning and baffling. It's stated, you know, in the big book that it's cunning and baffling and it will knock you down if you don't keep your defenses up. And I feel like my defenses are to continue going to meetings and give back and teach people what I was, what was taught to me freely and give it to them freely. And, you know, I am in a spiritual condition. I like to keep my spiritual condition strong. And because of that, I'm able to see that there's a higher power, a greater source, something bigger than me that helps me to maintain my sobriety. And it's not, you know, church, if God isn't your thing, fine. You know, most people I find it's religion. that's not their thing, you know? Um, and it doesn't, that's what I love about what I learned through this whole process is like, you know, I can look at nature as, as a God, I can look at, you know, I really connect with the moon and the stars and all these things. And I feel so connected to a higher power when I'm out at night, just looking up at the sky and it doesn't, you know, and I see a shooting star fly by when I'm thinking about something like those are my, my God moments. And, um, there are so many ways to look at yourself and take inventory of why you're feeling the way you're feeling and walk through it and come out on the other side of it, healed and honest and raw with yourself, you know? I tell people take responsibility for your happiness, um, you know, because a lot of women won't take responsibility for for a lot of things. We are um, victim mode, you know, and and the world is this entitlement, and I'm entitled to this because he's my husband, and he should be doing this instead of that. And it's like, well, okay, but what are you doing, you know, for your happiness? What are you doing? Well, what do you mean? I mean, women are blown away by that question. Like, well, what do you mean? What do I mean? What are you doing to, for your own happiness? I find joy meditating, going to meditation classes and, you know, going to yoga and making sure that I don't put my nose in people's business where it doesn't belong and that I like quit trying to look at everyone else's life and take inventory of it and then compare my life to, you know, other people's because that's comparison is the thief of joy and you're never going to find happiness if you want to sit and compare your life to everyone else around you or people that you see on social media. Um, And that really is where I am today. I just am brutally honest about how I have to take responsibility for my behavior. When I'm wrong, I say I'm wrong. I really hate giving amends. So I really have to try very hard to keep my side of the street clean. So I'm not having to apologize to people because I hate it. I just hate it. So, (laughs) you know, I try to do everything I can to be a better person and uh, live this life in a way that I can give back and serve as many people as possible, whether that's freely with Alcoholics Anonymous or whether it's, um, 
at my daughter's stuff and they need help with talking about addiction or if it's, you know, in my work, whatever it is, being able to show people that, you know, you can go through your, your stuff, you can wade through your shit and get it out and get to the other side, but you're the only one who can free yourself from it. I can give you a whole book of tools and, you know, step-by-step instructions on how you get things out and work through the emotions. But if you're not willing to lift the lock on the door and open it, you're never going to go anywhere. You know, I can't do it for you. And that's, you know, what I was given the gift of someone showing me that I was the one who held the key to my cage and that I was the one who could open the door and walk out and live a life that I wanted to live on purpose and that I could create any type of life for myself that I wanted. I just had to take one step at a time and get there, you know, and that's what's happened. I have a wonderful, I love my family. Thank God my parents didn't abandon me. Um, and they're, you know, very involved in, in our life. And my, my husband's family is, is wonderful and involved in our, you know, we have this big family and I have friends today who are my real friends who, if I called at 3 AM, not drunk, they would wake up and drive over if I needed something. And, um, that is the power of putting down a drink and, and getting rid of self-sabotage because I was my own worst enemy and I am my own worst enemy still if I allow myself to get to that place. You know, nobody, nobody can screw me up as much as I can screw myself up. Believe me, this inside my ears is a real bad neighborhood sometimes. And I have to like really try to get out of it, you know, because helping other people is how I found out how to get out of my own overthinking, self-indulgent, egotistical thought process where it's me, 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 me. What can I do? How can I get what I want? You know, overthinking and replaying all these things in my head. And, you know, when my sponsor first told me, well, get out of your head and go help someone. I was like, what the fuck are you talking about? I just told you I have this giant problem and you're telling me to go help somebody. Absolutely. Oh, so true. So true, isn't it? Oh, so true. Early in, in my recovery, uh, early in, in rehab, actually, I, I, I had a lot of resentment and, uh, and I, and yes, people have wronged me, but I was focused on me, 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 me. And uh, my counselor listened to me and, and said, look, I want you to read that book, please. I say, yeah, come on, give it to me. But, you know, me, 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 as you describe it. And then she gave me this book and it was, uh, it is, I don't think it's anymore in print. It is called Rise or Rise Up. And it's the story of a woman. And within the first 20 pages of the book, she describes coming home into her driveway where there is her husband who has got the children there and the the husband has got the girl's father there as well. And he proceeds to kill all of them in front of her eyes there and then because he was just a very, very deranged person. And I read that and I thought, what the hell? What the hell? 
And suddenly my problem, however big I thought it was, shrunk to nothing. And that was the first time in in my recovery that I realized that I'm not the center of the universe, that there are actually other people out there. And, and, and for crying out loud, as a doctor, I have always seen uh, bad stories around me, but somehow this was the first time that it clicked that I'm a selfish prick and that I better pull my socks up and actually think, hang on, stop, stop, stop. It is, yes, things went wrong in your life, but wow, there's this woman, how the hell can she now live and write this book about her experiences and how she rose from that level of desperation to what she then became? And it was wow. And, and I, that was also the first time I had the inkling, hang on, if she can't do it, as can do that, well, maybe I can. And it is that, that beautiful thing. And that's, I guess that's why I'm doing these interviews because I am so humbled to meet someone like you and are able to share my experiences. You share your experiences. And with that, we have got the, the unique possibility of touch others, other people's lives. And it's just, wow. And no doubt, as much as I recognize myself in your words, there will be many out there who will listen to the podcast or to this uh, YouTube video and will think, damn, that sounds like me. And that is a, such a beautiful place to be in, this, this first recognition, the first glimpse of, of walking down a, a, a dark corridor and suddenly there's just this door opening just a little bit and you see a light there and think, oh, okay. Um, there is light out there. There is an actual fact there is that door is open. Uh, it is actually only kept closed with the locks that you put on it. And that is, that is how, again, uh, a beautiful picture that you described there. Guys, uh, take the locks off and, and try to find a way, but you can't do it alone. You can try, but you probably are failing. So meetings are great. Yeah. But, um, then of course, a meeting is there for you to get introduced to the system and to get introduced to people that may become your sponsors. That's what meetings are there for, not for you to, to pitch tent. So you could take a shortcut and could actually say, okay, fine, I buy into that. I don't need necessarily to go to now two years of daily meetings. I could actually try to find someone like you, Brooke, who actually is willing to help you into the right way. Uh, no doubt meetings might be part and parcel of it because they, they, uh, they liven things up. You hear other people's opinions and not just Brooke's opinions or, or whoever you decide is your, your sponsor. But, uh, if people wanted to, to work with you, and talk to you, Brooke. How would they go about it? Um, well, I mean, when I have people, it's interesting how um, when people find me um, and they book, you know, discovery calls with me and they want to talk to me, it's interesting that I would say a good chunk of them um, have 
uh, uh, dependence on alcohol. Not necessarily all of them are alcoholics, obviously, but there's a dependence in using, and they read my story and they say like, you know, wow, well, yeah, that's, I'm numbing things out or I'm not wanting to feel. And, um, you know, they come to me and I, um, you know, I walk my, I walk my clients through um, a approach that I learned from the 12 steps of AA. It's not the 12 steps, obviously, but it's applicable to every person on earth, you know, and I've taken my little portion of it, you know, and created this program for people to go through and get their shit straight and get their skeletons out of their closet and get rid of the demons. And um, it's one of the most incredible experiences of my life when I watch somebody walk through things and do the work that I give them, um, clients and sponsees alike, right? Um, but they walk through it and they do it. And you meet with them maybe six weeks and maybe seven, maybe eight. And all of a sudden you, they walk through the door or they jump on my computer screen and it's like the light is out. You see it's, there's this radiance about them that was not there when you first met them. And I have a lot of people that, that message me on Instagram, you know, and, and Facebook, um, that just see my stories when I'm, you know, doing the stories and they say, wow, God, that was me. And thank you for your honesty and thank you for your vulnerability. And, you know, I can't help other people if I'm not honest about who I am and how I live and how I've come to live the life. I can say I'm an expert on X, Y, and Z and, and be hiding the fact that I'm a recovering alcoholic, right? But the fact is I am an expert on habit change because one, I've gone through it myself and two, because I, you know, took courses and classes to help me help people integrate change into their life. And change work is not easy, whether you're getting sober or you want to quit, you know, emotionally eating or you want to stop, you know, sleeping all the time, whatever, put, insert any issue, shopping too much, spending too much money. How do you change that habit? Right. And part of the thing is just the acceptance of it. And I find community to be um, pivotal in in helping people change what it is that they are seeking. I have women's soul circles. I have them virtually and I have them in person in my city where it's a community. It's a shop for women to sit down together and open up and be authentic and real and vulnerable. And they answer a question that I've, you know, thought up very carefully and it's usually very multifaceted and deep and they the healing that happens in that room it's like i ask a question and you just see it go woman to woman and the connections they form and the healing is the most powerful thing i think i've ever experienced in my life to date and we are craving community in, as a world population, men as well, I'm sure, as you can attest, you know, we, with the, with the enhancement of digital and virtual, and we are less connected and yet more connected and less connected emotionally than we've ever had to be. And creating 
places and spaces where people can can be together and be honest. And you might not do that with your best friends, but maybe you're in a community online where you can say, hey, I eat too much sugar and I feel like crap. And it doesn't have to be alcoholism, right? It can be anything that you're struggling with, that you're afraid to tell people who know you the best because you're afraid of the judgment that they're going to give you. And community and people who are doing the same thing is the most powerful thing on this planet. I've found that to be true over and over and over again with AA. You know, when I'm struggling, I walk into a meeting and I am instantly, instantly, I feel better and I know that I'm where I need to be and these people get me because real world people don't get me sometimes because they can't understand how my brain works. And I can go there and I'm safe and I can say, you know, my kids are driving me nuts today or my mom's on my ass about something or whatever, my husband, I want to choke him. And it's not, I don't have to worry about them going, but Brooke, don't say those things, you know, um, <laughs> I can be real in those, in those spaces. And that's where community and the power of it is just, it, it has the potential to take you to a whole new level of living if you have a community of people who you trust and can be real with. So true. So true. Oh, Brooke, I'm so, so grateful that you came to my show today. Uh, this, is, uh, this was such a heartwarming and, and honest story of yours. I'm incredibly humbled that you were willing to share that with me and with my listeners and viewers. And as I said, it resonated so much with me and it hopefully will also make people think out there and then seek a solution that suits them. And uh, I will certainly put your links into the, the description below here and oh. Uh, so we'll make sure that, that everyone can very easily get to you. I'm so grateful again. Thank you so much for, for appearing on my show. Look after yourself and no doubt I would love to stay in touch and, and we just keep working and, and infusing each other because you're, you're a great woman. Uh, it is, you really touched my soul there. And hopefully you, you will do the same to many, many people out there and make their lives better. So thank you very much, everyone, for coming to my show. Big hugs to you all out there. You can do it, guys. Take care of yourselves. Bye. Bye. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks for being a light. <laughs>